Cornucopia Radio presents Well, we, we had a call uh, from a, a man who'd uh, come across a, a body so, uh, when the pathologist arrived and uh, took his first look at the body uh, he then found that in fact the head was missing we, we had a name from, yes, from the lady who, who told us who it was, and uh, that led us to go to the, the premises of uh, Michael Telly. Well, I arrested him, and I found a machine gun behind the settee and several hundred rounds of ammunition and cow rations, enough to start the small war. And then I took him to Aylesbury Police Station. And it was found that Michael was part of this family that literally allowed him to do nothing with his fortune. She was a frightened lady who told me that on previous occasions he had held two guns to her head and recently he'd played Russian roulette with her. When I got the call, I was at work and I got a call. It was my father. He said to me, and I never forgot, your sister is dead. That's what I heard, and that's when I found out. And the first thing I thought was Michael killed her. It's like I already knew. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and look into cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The current case for review is the murder investigation in 1983 of Monica Zumstech Telling. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody, and thank you for continuing to join us for each episode. We've had some really supportive messages and reviews from people that have been listening to us and enjoying our shows. Now, the current case, what we've heard so far is that in the autumn of 1980, a young English aristocratic gentleman called Michael Tellin has a chance meeting with Lou and Elsa Zumsteg, and their youngest daughter, Erica, whilst out for a motorcycle ride in Sausalito in California. As a result, Michael's introduced to their eldest daughter, Monica, who quickly falls in love with him. They plan to marry in America, but that had to be postponed because Michael was still married, a fact he'd not previously divulged. The couple moved to the UK and subsequently marry at a very small ceremony, and that was in 1981 in High Wycombe. And so begins married life, and it's fair to say that that married life was somewhat erratic and disruptive. In March 1983, Monica ceases all contact with her family in the US, and Michael tells friends and neighbours in the UK that Monica's gone back to California. Then in September 1983, a headless corpse is found in a woodland near to Exeter Racecourse, and so an investigation takes place leading to the identification of Monica. Going from the day when the body is found, the investigation moves on really quite quickly, doesn't it? Incredibly so. As I think we mentioned already that, you know, murder inquiries, the essence is to move quickly 
preserve all the evidence, assess which direction the enquiries go in, because, as we know, as time goes on, it becomes harder and harder to piece the bits together, witnesses move, forget what's happened. So all efforts are put into a murder investigation and very quickly this bears fruit in this case, doesn't it? It does, because within those first few days, obviously the body is removed and goes off for a post-mortem and examination by forensic specialists. There's a search of the area and they sift the soil, don't they, and find teeth and fingernails. Obviously there's enquiries going on with missing persons in that area to try to establish whether this body is one of those missing persons. And then you've also got the blind alley enquiries. I think it was it was assumed initially that she'd been shot at the scene and then the head had been carried off by animals. And the reason that they came to that conclusion initially was that somebody local had heard gunshots around that time that the body was found. Yes, and if you picture the scene, it's quite a rural location, isn't it? So farmers, uh, people who hunt or, or use rifles for target practice, the sound travels a long way. Members of the public, when they hear that a body's been found, report the fact that they've heard gunshots, which isn't unusual in those type of areas. We live in a rural area, we hear gunshots quite regularly. doesn't mean to say somebody's been shot, but if a body's found, people assume that that's connected. I mean, the pathologist believed that the body had been murdered several weeks before it was found, when in fact it was a considerably a lot longer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was months rather than weeks. So again, enquiries are, are centred around the fact that who went missing in the last few weeks, possibly, where it was a lot longer. And in those early days, one of the other blind alleys was the fact that some staff from a local hotel contacted the police to say that how they described them as foreigners staying at their hotel. And when they'd left, they'd left a bloodied shirt behind. And that raised a whole rake of enquiries. Yes, quite. Everyday events, which would probably be passed off as somebody's had a fight or something had gone wrong, who knows what conclusions the hotel would have come to. But as soon as the police and the media get hold of the fact that somebody's been murdered in brutal circumstances, a link is made which diverts considerable staff and manpower to, to investigate it, which you would. And again, that was found to be nothing to do with the body that was found. But the two big pieces of information came as a result of that public appeal on the television. And that led to one lady ringing in to say that her daughter had been to California, America, and had bought some shorts similar to the ones that were on the public appeal. And then secondly, Christina, who was Monica's best friend, rang in to say that the T-shirt that had been shown on the television appeal, she identified as, as being one that, that Monica owned. Yes, and if you look at it as the police incident room, the senior officer involved would have looked at it, you've got California connections with the clothing. Then when Christine reports her friend who's mysteriously not been heard of for some time from California, I would think their ears pricked up pretty quick and all of a sudden you're on another line of inquiry, which, as we know, was, was the right one. Yeah, and that led to the identification of Monica and subsequently to, uh, to Michael Telling. At this point, we want to turn back to our 
chat with Brian Rundle. You'll recall we talked to him in the first show of this series. He was the senior investigating officer in this investigation. And we asked him that now he knew who the victim was, what happened when he went to visit Michael Tellin to ask him further questions? There were inquiries going on, yes. Um, but the, the team obviously um, went to speak to him um, initially to uh, just to inquire where his wife was and what he could tell us about that. And really, as a result of what, what he said, uh, he was taken into custody in High Wycombe. And there he would be held, his house and, and surrounding area searched. That uh, it would, yes. Then forensic teams went, went to that house and uh, carried out a search. And it sort of coincided with the fact that Michael Telling fairly quickly admitted that he had murdered his wife, which, of course, gave us a, a a fairly firm foundation. And uh, what we had to determine then was uh, where the when the murder took place and also uh, where it had been before it was transported to Exeter. Uh, and it was at that time and during those, those interviews that Telling then said to uh, the officers there that um, the head was, in fact, in the, the boot of his mini car, which, in fact, was recovered inside several black bags and not a not a sight to behold, really. So that the car was at his home address, I understand. Yes, yes, and he had several vehicles and motorcycles. He'd got certainly three uh, Harley Davidson motorcycles. So, having found Monica's head in the boot of his mini at his home address and his admissions, what brought those events to to come to pass and he do this? Well, then, obviously, the inquiry was to find where the body had been before it came to, to Exeter. Uh, and it turned out that, in fact, it had been placed by telling in an outdoor sauna that uh, they got on the premises and left there um, to just deteriorate. So uh, there were quite a number of specialists involved in relation to the body. As you can imagine, there were different kinds of flies in and around the body that uh, determined uh, when perhaps the, the murder had taken place. So having got to this stage, how and when did Monica die? I, I'm talking off the top of my head now, you have to accept that, but I, it was about seven or eight months previously. So Michael had kept, he'd murdered Monica... Yeah. And, and kept her in yeah. a, a, a outbuilding, like a sauna building of some kind. Yeah, right. And it, she'd remain there until yeah, when? So, well, uh, until he then decided that he was going to uh, move her. Uh, and for whatever peculiar reason he had, he, he brought her down to, to Devon and uh, dumped her, really, uh, up near the race course. But he... He sort of thought in his own mind, he said, that uh, she would enjoy the view from up there. So take what you will from that. And and where did he chop her head off? Was it at the scene there? Well, it was about identification, yeah, um, to make sure that she she wouldn't be identified there. But he, he'd not made up his mind, obviously, what he was going to do with the head, um, whether there was some kind of deep down feeling that he had that uh, he would still remain close to her. And Michael Telling, was he 
the marriage was obviously troubled by the sound of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there a, was this an ongoing sort of uh, a culmination of events that led to the, the, the death of Monica? Yes, there was, but none that we actually were able to confirm positively. So we've got now Michael's admitting killing his wife, and and I understand, we may have mentioned it, he shot her, didn't he? Yes. And he he had access to high-powered, I think, a hunting rifle. Which he'd bought, I think, in Australia on a previous visit. The... The weapon, um, we, we didn't find the weapon, and we did searches. He uh, supposedly threw it into the river uh, in the area, up, uh, up in High Wycombe Way. But we had divers, etc., looking for that, uh, but uh, didn't recover a, a weapon. And that, uh, I think it, from my memory, it was a thirty thirty Marlin hunting rifle? Yes, surely, yes, yeah. And as you say, that that was never found? No. He had access to other weapons. He was a bit of a collector, was he, or an enthusiast? Well, he, he, yes. I mean, he got money to burn, effectively, and uh, so he did whatever he wanted he could buy, whether it was cars or motorcycles or whatever it was. And, I mean, the house was um, quite a substantial building anyway. At that stage, I would think you were quite relieved that this inquiry was sort of getting to the conclusion. Oh, it's up and running then, of course, obviously. And it really then we were able to home in on issues that uh, were necessary to be able to, to put him before a court. Well, this is really gruesome. It's certainly not for the squeamish, is it? This is uh, quite an unusual case. And as we've, we have mentioned, normally, you know, murders happen, they're domestic, they're, they're very quickly found. This was a murder that had taken place months before the body was found. And it was five months. I know Brian said seven to eight, but actually it was it was five months, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, it was when we interviewed him, it was from his memory uh, all those years ago. and 38 years 38, ago. 38 years ago, yes. So we now know that it was uh, five months before the body was found. And what happened to the body during that period was bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, it... It appears that she was shot at Lambourne House, the home where they were living, and then he kept her in the sauna, an outside sauna, and left her there and then carried on his his daily business. Which is very eerie, isn't it, that he's living in that house and he had visitors to the house and in the sort of confines of the garden area where the sauna was, was the body of his dead wife, which had lain there for, as we know, five months. That is very strange behaviour, isn't it? It is, but it's it's not unusual for people who are murderers or people who kill other people to retain the bodies. And the case that I'm particularly thinking about is that one of Dennis Nilsson. Can you remember he was convicted of killing 12 young men and boys between 1978 and 1983 and he lived in a flat on his own and he he killed them at the flat and then some of the bodies once he killed them he would sit them on the sofa and I, I think in the material that I've read about that he said that he wanted to come home to somebody. Yes uh, uh, there's extremes of these cases which that one was and this one's you know, in that category, isn't it? Did Michael want to come back to his home where Monica was, even though she was dead and decomposing in, in an outside sauna? Thinking about that, though, John, 
why did he move her? Why did he move her in the first place? I think that he was sort of in the process because of his uh, trust fund that it was automatically every so often that renovation work or decorating work was done at the house. And I think he was notified that workmen may well be coming in the near future to do this work. And, and of course, it panicked him, no doubt, that what do I do with this body? And if we've got workmen here, will somebody find her? But he he did put her body in a vehicle and take her all the way to the woodland near Exeter Racecourse. And that's, as we've heard, about 100 miles away from where they actually lived. And that's where he dumped her body and decapitated her at that point and then returned home with her head in the vehicle, which he then wrapped in plastic bags and kept in the boot of his mini car. Yes, I mean, why did he do that? And again, does it come back to the your theory that people want to retain some connection with their loved ones as they were at one time? And he decapitated her in Devon, as we understand. And of course, during that process was when her teeth were either knocked or fell from her mouth and the police found them. When you look at a body that's been decomposing for five months, the teeth aren't going to be anchored in the gums the same way that our teeth are. No, that's right. I mean, the body's decomposing, the muscles are relaxing. So did they fall out in the trauma of when he chopped her head off? I think what we're trying to do is is rationalise something that is exhibited by a person who probably wasn't thinking that rationally to us sat here talking about it and to our listeners thinking about it. Why would you cut somebody's head off and take the head back home? But you've got to get into the mindset of Michael. He's killed his wife. He's retained her body for the last five months. He's now driven her a hundred miles away, dumped the body it's got to have been an irrational thought that makes him chop off a head and return home with the head, hasn't it? Or was he thinking quite positively and knowing that if the body is found, there's a good chance that she will be identified? We know that she had some dental work done, didn't she, not long before she was murdered. And it's quite common knowledge that we use teeth to identify people. Was he thinking completely opposite to what we've just discussed. Was he thinking, if I don't take a head, that will lead to my downfall and she'll be quickly identified and traced back to him? Yeah, and, and that's that's the other, the other option, isn't it? Because up until only a few weeks before uh, her death, she'd had some dental work done in London and therefore they would have had her dental records. So... But up until that point, there wouldn't have been any records, dental or otherwise, in the UK of Monica. Yes. So there's two two options. And again, I'm sure this was explored subsequently at the trial, what his state of mind was at the time of the murder and subsequently. Really, we shouldn't be surprised by the method in which he, he killed her, should we? Well, no, we've heard already that... It got this fascination with high-powered weapons. We've heard from Steve Thrift that, you know, he took off him a handgun and a machine gun, 
also his behaviour in the past. He's had erratic behaviour, damaging property, threatening people, having a gun himself that he was possibly going to commit suicide with. There's drink involved, there's drugs involved, possibly. and High emotions involved. I was just going to say high emotions and in the, the heat of the moment of an argument, anything can happen, as we know from our experiences, and people do... Snap. Do snap, and uh, if he had a gun to hand, he certainly shot her, we know that. The exact reasons are only speculation, aren't the, they? The, the circumstances, was it, as you say, just that spur of the moment high emotions, grab the gun and shoot? Or was it a more premeditated incident that this is what he planned to do and this is what he did? Those are the options, aren't they? Yes, quite. Well, we both feel that we should hear more from Steve as his knowledge about both Monica and Michael is important to understanding what happened next. And we asked him if he had any more interactions with either of them after his confrontation with Michael? No, I didn't. I, I'm, I became wrapped up in other things. Where I was stationed was an incredibly busy CID office. Um, and I didn't have any more to do with them until I was overseas. When I heard about that a body had been found, there was a T-shirt on that body that I recognised. So I made the phone call and apparently they'd been trying to contact me to ask me to go and arrest him because I was the only police officer that had ever met him before. But I couldn't do that because I was overseas. So you had no involvement in the subsequent uh, murder inquiry? None at all, no. None at all. I I spoke to the uh, officers involved in it, and they told me some of the details, um, which I tend to believe more than uh, what has been written in the newspapers. Monica's family didn't have any contact with her after... Um, March 1983. Do you know if she was ever reported missing? Um, No, she wasn't ever reported missing, no. I I have no idea why. Because didn't Michael Tallinn sort of put a smokescreen up to cover uh, absence? He put lots of smokescreens up, yes. Um, He he even hired a private detective um, just to see where she had gone. Um, He emptied a bank account and... um, he did everything he could to throw the smokescreen around what had actually happened. So basically, as we now know, of course, he'd uh, murdered her by shooting her, and to cover her absence, he, he made it look as though he was actively trying to find her. Yes, indeed, yes. But he also ramped up the security at uh, the house that he lived in, Lambourne House, which he, put, he, built, he planted conifers, he put CCTV system around the house, and he had two guard dogs as well. But this was only after the event, and immediately after the event. And why would he do that, do you think? Um, to keep away prying eyes, I would suggest. Because at the time, the body was still in the sauna, don't forget. Well, as Steve suggests, it may be obvious why Michael decided to increase security at Lambourne House. Why do you think he did that? Well, as we know, people who have murdered somebody must be in a panic when they've realised what they've done, whether it be intentional or not. I mean, unless you're a professional hitman, it must be a real emotional roller coaster that when your realisation of what you've done kicks in. As we know from our experience, people sometimes murder people and ring the police straight away and say, I've just killed so-and-so. Yeah, I can remember one 
when I was at work and a young man ran the police and said he'd had an argument with his brother. And when the police got there, his brother was in the chair in the front room. It was one of these terrace houses where you walked straight from the pavement into the front room. And as the officer walked in, the guy who'd rung in, his brother was sat in a chair, almost decapitated. So whatever that argument was about had led to something very, very serious going on and the death of his brother. But he rang up and said, I've had an argument with my brother straight away. So he knows that something's going to happen and he got the police involved straight away. I mean, I'm going back many, many years. But I say in Michael's case, he does the opposite, doesn't he? He puts up a smokescreen of possibilities as to explain where Monica has gone and, and, and puts in sort of uh, action other people to make inquiries, like a private detective, to try and trace where she is because no doubt his story was that we've had an argument or the marriage has broken down and she's disappeared and gone back to America or elsewhere and I want you to find her. And it makes you wonder, at what point does that kick in? At what point, when you've shot somebody and killed somebody, do you say, I need to ring the police and I need to get help and I need to get someone here or I need to sort this out, this needs to be distance from me and go on this elaborate story of telling friends and neighbours that are in the UK that she's gone back to California. Which then moves away from what we discussed in the past about what state of mind he was in when he actually murdered and now he's, he's coming round to what he can do to conceal the death and also give a convincing explanation and try, or seem to be trying, to find her, to the extent that he, he uses her bank account, doesn't he, to withdraw money, which would lead anybody to think, well, she's alive. she's still around, yeah. Because yeah. she's withdrawing money from her bank account, which was all a charade, wasn't it? Yeah, and as we know from the stories that we've we've heard about Michael, it wasn't an alien concept for him to throw up a smokescreen or... To live a lie. Well, he was a life of lies, wasn't he? We, we know that from all his history. And and now he's sort of increasing the security at the house. Now, is that to keep people away from the house so he doesn't want to come in in case they find her? You know, an intruder may break in and, and suddenly stumble across her body in the sauna. So, again, he's thinking of all the options he has to, A, conceal the murder and, B, give an explanation as to... Where she is. Where she is and why is she's not with him anymore. And people tend to believe him by the by the look of it because although people were concerned and obviously thought this was odd that Monica hadn't made contact, nobody reports her missing to the authorities. As we mentioned in the last episode, the police officer, Stephen Thrift, has written a book about his knowledge of Michael and, and the events that took place in his life and his relationship with Monica. The book's called Telling Lies, and that's due for publication later this year. But within that book, he talked to Christina, Monica's good friend who she met when she first moved to the UK. They were the best of friends, weren't they? And she, she got to the stage where she hadn't heard from 
Monica. And when she made inquiries with Michael, well, where's Monica? He said that she'd gone back to America to her family. And Christina thought that was really strange because they'd been such good friends. She couldn't believe that her that her good friend would just up and go and not tell her that she was she was going. We heard Christina's words spoken by an actress in the last episode and Christina was quite pivotal in the identification of Monica once she saw the T-shirt on the public appeal by the police. And so we're going to go back to Christina's words, but once again being spoken by an actress. The trial in 1984 was a terrible experience for me, and I still have it fresh in my mind. As I entered the court, Michael was standing in the dock. He looked at me and smiled. During the whole trial, Monica's good name was dragged through the mud. Her character was assassinated. After Michael was sentenced, I spent years looking over my shoulder, worried in case one day he would come looking for me. Even after I married and moved a long way away to Scotland in 1993... I regularly thought about him and was scared in case he found me. I have never forgotten my beautiful friend Monica. And not a day goes by when she doesn't enter my mind. I only wish I had enough money to give her when she wanted to leave. And then she could have escaped and who knows how different things might have been. Rest in peace, my wonderful friend and fly with the angels forever. Obviously, Monica and Christina were very good friends and after the body was identified as being Monica's, you have to ask yourself what effect that would have on a close friend like Christina. I mean, I'm sure that goes without saying, really, that she'd be grief-stricken and also, of course, now concerned as to what is going to happen in the future because... Michael clearly has tried to paint the picture that she's gone of her own free will and told numerous sort of uh, cover stories to explain her disappearance. Now really the truth is out that she hadn't disappeared, she'd been murdered and Christine had identified the body in Devon and brought the police attention focusing on Michael telling. Now he could react in many ways, couldn't he? And and Christina didn't know which way. I'm, I'm sure what was going to happen next. She would be terrified, I would have thought. I mean, it's always really difficult when anybody gives evidence. I mean, there's weeks, months, years where I've walked into a courtroom every day, morning and afternoon, and you kind of get battle-hardened to that. But what you have to imagine is somebody who's never had any contact probably with the police, certainly not been involved in um, the criminal justice system, is now asked to testify against somebody who not only she was pretty scared of, but she knows that the victim, Monica, was also very scared. And she had been privy to some of those bizarre outbursts of of violence and that sort of erratic behaviour. If you're going to go and stand in a witness box in the silence of the court and tell people what you know and what you thought and the person that you're frightened of is stood only feet away from you, 
it's it's an incredible leap that witnesses make, isn't it? Yes, and not only is it the person who's in the dock, but it could be any of the associates of that person. As we know, Michael purported to be this uh, undercover spy, SAS man, whatever, and had undesirable people visit the house, which, again, you just don't know what reaction Michael is going to have because if it wasn't for Christina, possibly, possibly, he may have got away with this. And, of course, she's focused the police attention on him. She's pointed the finger, hasn't she? Absolutely. And, you know, it is a harrowing and frightening and distressing position to be in when you're a key witness in this type of case. And now, of course, more modern-day sort of procedure, there is protection for these people, isn't there? We've learnt over the years that witnesses have been intimidated and threatened. And, of course, now there is a system in place to, to deal with that in a better method than was available in the 80s. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that Christina was a very brave person to walk into that courtroom and give the evidence that, that she did give. Yes, and we know what those witnesses are going to go through in the court system, don't we? Having lived in them all our lives, if you like, we know the the crux of the case is to discredit the witnesses for the prosecution if you're at a defence barrister, aren't they? So it won't be a pleasant place to be. Well, we're returning to speak to Brian Rundle, the Senior Investigating Officer, because on Monday, the 12th of September 1983, Michael Tellin appeared at Wandsford Magistrates Court in Exeter. As as I've said, there was no house-to-house inquiries to be made, uh, and uh, so we concentrated very much on uh, what he had to say and what was in uh, High Wycombe, uh, because there was nothing other than that in the Devon and Cornwall police area. Having uh, got to that stage, I presume you must have made some contact with Monica's family who were still resident in California. Um, specifically, no. It sort of came in a roundabout kind of a way, really, because there was an interest as well from a, a guy who was the author of a number of books in America and came over here and... Uh, the book in question, I think, is Irresistible Impulse by Robert Lindsay? That's right, yes, yes. So... And the, it, the Irresistible Impulse, of course, was the, the basis of the, his defence. Well, Sally, subsequently, Michael Tallinn was charged with the offence of murder in respect of Monica, wasn't he? and appear before Exeter Crown Court for a trial because he pleaded not guilty to the offence of murder and subsequently the trial concluded with a with a different verdict, wasn't it? Yeah, he was convicted of not murder but manslaughter and I know that people listening to this will have heard that in other cases that people are charged with murder, go to court and after trial, aren't convicted of murder, but convicted of manslaughter. And one of those issues that reduces the charge from murder to manslaughter is what we refer to as diminished responsibility. When you think about murder and what needs to happen for a murder to be committed, you might think is a really easy question. 
But actually, a murder is where a person of sound mind and discretion unlawfully kills another human being under the Queen's peace. That means we're not at war uh, with the intent to kill them or with the intent to cause them grievous bodily harm. So that's what murder is. But then when you say that somebody is suffering from an abnormality of the mind, that gives you a partial defence of a diminished responsibility. And if the jury are convinced that his responsibility was diminished because of his state of mind, then it gets reduced to a manslaughter charge. And also, as we know, that because of, no doubt, the family money in respect of Michael already explored areas where has his money got him off lightly at courts. In this case, the family retained the services of a very well-known defence QC, QC being a Queen's counsel, called George Carman, who acted for Michael. And no doubt, because of his abilities, persuaded the court in Michael's favour, wasn't it? Yeah. A barrister's job is to try to explain through the evidence that is being given what the circumstances were or what the excuses were for those circumstances arising. And if you've got somebody who is incredibly eloquent and very good with words, and in his day, George Carman was probably the most prominent barrister in the UK. And so they engaged his services, they instructed him, and he was responsible for presenting Michael's defence to the court. And he was obviously very good at it and very convincing. I mean, he was one of the people I would have really liked to meet, George Carmen. He was, in his day, very successful in the libel courts, wasn't he? And retained by very wealthy people to defend them against libel accusations. He was incredibly... Charismatic. Charismatic. In fact, his nickname was Gorgeous George, wasn't it? Because, it was, yeah. Because, of course, he had that ability to appeal to a court and the jury and make them sort of take on board the points he was making on behalf of his client. And that's what George Carman did for Michael Tellin, wasn't it? He, he, he painted the picture. And unfortunately, the main witness to what the behaviour leading up to the murder wasn't there because it was Monica who was not alive at the time. And, of course, she couldn't speak for herself, could she? And, and and that's the difficulty, isn't it? You've got two people who are in a dysfunctional relationship, for want of a, a better word, and the one person that you have in front of you to tell you how that relationship worked is the defendant. So he can say what his concept of the relationship was like and the other party, Monica, isn't there to either defend herself or refute what that other person is saying. And of course, as part of his evidence, Michael made allegations that Monica was a lesbian, she was into drink, she was into drugs, she used to goad him about his lack of sexual prowess. And all that came from Michael. Didn't come from Monica because she's no longer with us to say, hang on a minute, this is not how the relationship was. 
And clearly what George Carman QC did was be able to explain to the jury in a very convincing way that Michael's version of events outweighed any of the prosecution version of events. Because when you're on trial for something, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. And did he commit murder beyond reasonable doubt? And of course, George Carmen set the seed that listening to Michael's evidence that she did have drink problems, she did have drug problems, she had attitude problems in that she was goading him uh, about aspects of his personality and convinced the jury the balance went in the defence's favour. Also, it should be pointed out that in a criminal trial, it's for the prosecution to prove their case, isn't it? It is. It's for the prosecution to prove what they're saying is right. It's the job of the defence to put that seed of doubt in the mind of the jury. Because when the judge is summing up, he will say to a jury along the lines of, if you are sure that Michael Telling killed Monica Telling and that he wasn't suffering from any kind of problem that diminished his responsibility, then he is guilty of murder. However, if you have a grain of doubt, that is when you find him not guilty of murder and guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Sally, part of the the trial hinged on the fact that uh, Michael Tellin suffered from what was referred to as an irresistible impulse. What, What does that mean? Irresistible impulse is not a term that we use a great deal in English law. However, it's a partial defence. And what we're looking at in that partial defence of irresistible impulse is that they acted in a way that their responsibility was diminished. So they were suffering from something that made them unable to account for their actions. And that is that is it in the very basic of terms, because it's a very complicated area of law. But if you think about the words irresistible impulse, probably what you formulate in your head, he had an irresistible impulse, is probably the best way that you could think about it and and explain it. An irresistible impulse, I had to do something. And interestingly, uh, Robert Lindsay, who wrote the book on uh, Monica and Michael Telling's life and the subsequent murder of Monica and the trial, called his book Irresistible Impulse, didn't he? He did, yes. And I think probably the title of a book, To Capture Your Audience, needs to be very striking. And I don't think a book called Diminished Responsibility or Not Convicted of Murder but Manslaughter by Means of Diminished Responsibility is such a catchy title. So that's, I'm sure, why Robert Lindsay went for The Irresistible Impulse. Yeah, the book by Robert Lindsay focused on his research mainly with Monica's parents, wasn't it? and the information they provided after the the murder and the trial. That's right, yes. Monica's parents, Lou and Elsa, spoke with Robert Lindsay and gave him information and background uh, about Monica, the family, and Monica's relationship with Michael. And Erica and Mark were not aware 
of that collaboration until about three days before the book was was released. So they never had an opportunity to put their side of the story first. And I think the reason that Lou and Elsa did that was, yes, they wanted to get the story out, but they wanted to shelter their son and their daughter from what they were doing. And they were completely unaware until, as you say, three days before the actual book came out. And I don't think the book came out in the terms that any of the family expected. So one of the other aspects, Ali, of the trial process is that it only deals with evidence from prosecution and defence witnesses. And if the family, an extended family, haven't been involved in that process, they're not actually included in the trial, are they? No, and it's fair to say that none of the Zumsteg family were involved in the trial. None of them were called to give evidence for either the prosecution or the defence. And because of that, none of the Zumstegs were present at the trial. As you know, as a member of the public, you can go and listen to a trial. You can go and sit in the public areas and you can you can listen to a trial. But they were at the other side of the world. They were in California. And because they didn't have a part in the trial, they didn't come to this country to listen to the trial. So none of the Zumstegs had any representation at that trial. I would think mainly because what they could say was just the background information, how they met and uh, the the marriage, etc., which wasn't in dispute, was it? it? The bit that was in dispute would be the build-up to the day in question when Michael shot Monica, which they weren't there. They, they weren't there and they had... I suspect a limited knowledge of what was what was happening. Um, Christina tells us where Monica was at the stage where she wanted a divorce. That's not something that she discussed with her family. So, so they weren't privy to everything that those friends and neighbours that surrounded Michael and Monica were privy to. And I think that is the same for any family. You try to protect your mum, your dad, your siblings from what's going on. So in respect of Michael telling, the judge sentenced him to life imprisonment. As we know, life life doesn't always mean life. Uh, we do hear of people who have committed murder being paroled from prison, although they are on licence for the rest of their lives. So if they committed a further offence, they would be subject to a recall and have to go back to prison. And in rare cases where the most extreme cases like the Yorkshire Ripper and those type of cases where life does mean life. Yeah, I think they're called whole life orders. Um, and when one of those is given, that does mean there's no possibility that you're going to be released. And I think, as you say, Peter Sutcliffe was under a whole life order. If you're convicted of murder, am I right in saying that the judge will sentence you to a life sentence and can make recommendations as to what length you serve before you can possibly be released or appear before a parole board for release. That's right. If you if you are convicted of murder and the judge sentences you to life imprisonment, which he has to do because that's mandatory, he can then give a recommendation. You will not be released for... 
25 years, that means that person's eligibility for parole comes after 25 years. So he could apply for parole after the 25 years he's served, and then he has to convince the parole board that he's fit for parole. And in respect of Michael Tellian, of course, he was handed a life sentence, but the judge didn't give a minimum term, did he? Not as far as I'm aware in Michael's case, but because the conviction was for manslaughter, the sentence is a maximum of life imprisonment. So he could have received anything up to that life sentence. And as it was, after 10 years in prison, he must have made an application for parole because he was released in January of 1994. So that application for parole must have been successful to result in his release. And the parole board basically assess whether a person is rehabilitated, has undergone treatment for any mental illness. And at that point, they're satisfied that they're no longer a danger to themselves or anybody else. And that's the way it works with with that system, isn't it? It is. We spoke about the trial and the fact that Monica's family didn't take part in the trial. And after all the things that have been said about Monica, we return and speak to Monica's sister, Erica. At the end of the trial, Michael was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. How did that make you and your family feel about that verdict? Well, personally, and I could probably speak for my parents, and that is that it was, how can you just say it's bullshit? (laughs) Because, and I know personally, Monica, she was in fear. She was living in fear. There were things that I would know about. There were things she would talk to my parents about or maybe friends about but not all to everyone. But Monica was an American citizen. And having been that, she didn't have necessarily records, for instance, dental records done in England. But Charlie, before he murdered her, and I don't consider it manslaughter, it was murder, it was premeditated, Monica had had some dental work done, I believe, in London, as I recall. And therefore, there's now records of Monica's, you know, her dental records are there. And, you know, the way my sister was found decapitated and her head missing, I seem to recall Michael making some comment towards at the end of the trial and being found responsible of um, manslaughter um, and diminished, as you said, responsibility. Um, But the point is, he took her, he said something to the effect of he loved her, he couldn't do anything to her head. I still think, one of the things I remember Michael saying was, thank God I wasn't considered, you know, not exact words, or found a murderer because my son, Matthew, would have to grow up with a father as a murderer or something to the effect. So he was happy he got manslaughter. But the 
the thing is, I ha- you know, it still doesn't tell the truth. It absolutely doesn't tell the truth. It it just helped with her, their narrative as to Monica. The idea was to put Monica as she had it coming rather than the victim. You know, she was slandered. Monica was literally slandered. It was premeditated murder. And then you come up with the life sentence. Michael didn't do life. You know, what did the immediate effect of Monica's death have on, on the family? Now, I'm sure everybody could imagine what took place, but could you describe what the effect was for us? Um, the effect has never stopped. Um, Monica was an incredibly important, loving, considerate part family, kept in touch with all the relatives, even our older relatives. Monica, to my twin brother and I, she had six years on us. You know, I, Monica was almost more than a big sister to my brother and I. And my brother, when we finally had that funeral in Santa Rosa, I had to pull my twin brother Mark off of her coffin. I had to pull him off of there. And the effects from that day, my brother, he just started going downhill. He started using drinking and whatever. He couldn't handle it. Um, myself, I have to say, I went through one bad relationship after another. I couldn't handle being with people. I didn't trust people. I had developed PTSD and anxieties, not quite too bad yet. But when the book came out, when that book came out, it was 10 years later. And all of a sudden, three days before the release of that book, Irresistible Impulse by Robert Lindsay, is when my twin brother and I were informed about the book. My parents thinking, thinking they were protecting us, I have no clue. They thought that they were doing something for Monica and speaking out, but they didn't tell Mark and I until three days before the release of that book. And unfortunately, at that point, my brother, he was just spiraling. Within a month of the release of that book, uh, my mother actually crawled in a window and found my brother dead of a drug overdose. So my parents, my father, after my brother died, He had told my mother, grab Ricky and you and take a flight and go visit family in Switzerland. I didn't know till after we came back from that trip that my father had driven his motorcycle above the town of Calistoga, above the vineyards, absolutely beautiful area to pull over. And he intended on shooting and killing himself. But by the grace of God, a couple of bikers showed up and they recognized him. And my father told me later that he, this had taken place, that he was going to kill himself. You've mentioned uh, your mum is still alive. And does she still talk about Monica? It has been absolutely horrible for my mother, and which has made it horrible for me for all these years because it has never stopped on her mind. She is almost 92 years old. And if I try to say something fun, a fun memory, all I hear about is I told Monica to come home. 
But mom, all she can come up with is certain things. She, oh, well, I must say she had some fabulous memories. She, you know, and she remembers Christmas and such. But the thing is, the biggest things mom remembers anymore, it, I can't say any of the nice things anymore, the fun memories, because automatically my mother's brain goes straight back to, I told Monica to come home. Monica, just come home. And that's, you know, she just, and then she, she just remembers, you know, the horrible parts and the loss. And to this day, she's a tiny one. And, you know, I've been sitting here all these years trying to keep my family happy. And to this day, that's what I do. And it's difficult when I try somehow to go forward. And last year, I finally made a choice because I've not been able to go without going to the damn cemetery for years. I have to go to the cemetery since Monica died. I have her picture on that cemetery stone. And now my brother's there with her and his picture's there. And I felt guilt. I felt so much guilt if I didn't go see my sister there. She had wanted me to come to England. She was scared and she wanted somebody there with her. Had I gone, maybe I'd be in that cemetery. But I decided a year ago that I don't have to go there anymore. That I don't need to feel guilt because I didn't do anything wrong. I just felt, I don't know. I, I just felt I had to be there. And the constant trauma the PTSD that I continue to experience has so damaged what my life could have been. And I have to say, so much of myself is like my sister. I am my sister's sister. I absolutely love people. Um, always a social, fun, silly, but gradually you know it's weighed down on me the sadness i feel every birthday three days later my sister my dad's birthday you know it, it's very difficult and i know uh, it is very difficult erica and i can both of us can hear the the emotion in your voice and um just don't know what to say um, about the events of that day back in 1980 when you had a chance meeting with an Englishman on a motorbike and that had such tragic consequences for you and all of your family. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, my father, when he was going to try and kill himself, his whole thing was that he felt guilt. He didn't do anything wrong, but he felt guilt. So for the members of the family of a victim of such a serious and violent crime, that can affect and leave scars on even, even the strongest of families. And it's heartbreaking to hear how the Zumsteg family have tried to cope since the death of Monica. And families go through 
all sorts of emotions. I mean, obviously distress and grief, but then sadness, anger, rage, and that guilt. And also that we just discussed clearly has affected Erica for all these years until we spoke to her. It's been eating away at her, hasn't it? And the impact on the family has been, apart from Monica's murder, has been quite devastating, hasn't it? And and that's what I'm... That's what I say about the the anger and the rage, but then at the end of all of that comes the guilt. Could could we have done anything any different? If only we hadn't gone out on that day, or we left the house later, we left the house earlier, we didn't go out at all that day, we wouldn't have met Michael Telling. And then obviously leading on from that, Monica's father, Lou, encouraged Michael to go to meet Monica. That's a huge burden on on shoulders and, and, and Lou had to live with that and the whole family had to live with that. Yes, the that chance meeting, as we've said all along, haven't we? That Just that brief meeting at the traffic lights on the motorbikes, nobody would have thought that subsequently the, some stakes' lives would be ruined just by that one meeting. Yeah, and... Um- once you've suffered the loss of somebody very close to you and in very traumatic circumstances, the trial's over, the perpetrator's gone to prison, the case is now history and you, the family, are left with having to live with your grief, live with what happened, live with your guilt and carry on living life. The other thing which is very sad, of course, was that a mum still alive as we speak today. Yeah. And when we speak to Erica, she, a mum keeps saying all I wanted was for Monica, Monica to, to come home. And if she had come home, this wouldn't have happened. And that's a mum at 92, I think she is. I think she, yeah, yeah. Is still living with that trauma, if you like, that if she'd only come home. Yeah, and then the effects on the rest of the family as well within weeks of that irresistible impulse book being published mark erica's twin brother took his own life and lou zumsteg erica's father died in 2006 and she she said he never forgave himself for making that introduction and that all goes back to that issue of guilt john the fact that these these families do live with a multitude of emotions, but guilt can weigh very, very heavy. For a long time. For a very, very long time. After the trial and the subsequent conviction, Michael went off to prison and started that prison life. And he was actually in the same prison as Stephen Downing, If you recall, we interviewed Stephen Downing for those first three episodes of our podcast that we launched last year. And it was the following comment from Stephen that led us first becoming interested in this case. And I understand you met some quite interesting fellow prisoners whilst you were in there. Yeah, there's one or two. I Michael Tellin, he's... uh, Remember, uh, his, I think it was his grandmother was uh, part of the Dewhurst family, uh, the butchers, and they were unbelievably rich. 
Um, and somehow along the bloodline, they, they related to the Queen. And I mean, he was in for murdering his wife. Um, you know, happy to be friends with. What was he like? Uh, same, I mean, he was pretty much full of himself, you know, and I think it come to being spoiled, having so much money and believe being an only child as well. So he was used to getting the attention and he demanded that wherever he went, like, you know. So on, they were neighbours of yours then on the wing, were they? Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, Mickey was, I think, about seven or eight cells down. And, uh, but they both worked together in the library. I worked in the education department. And uh, so, uh, we're, you know, we're pretty much friends throughout the day and into the evenings as well. There's one thing that I feel we ought to mention at this time, and Stephen alluded to the fact that Michael Telling was related to the Queen. That's not the case. I think it's fair to say that the Vesti family in more recent times were associates of the royal family, but in no way are they are they related. I think Stephen just got sort of uh, overwhelmed with the connection with Michael, wasn't it? It was an unusual prisoner to be in, in prison, you know, a man of wealth and the background and the family. And, of course, no doubt Michael's spun stories to the prisoners and Stephen's believes it was uh, part of the royal family, which which is just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, but it just, it just shows you where talking to different people takes us. And on that occasion, talking to Stephen Downing, took us to the Michael Telling case. And as we do talk to people involved in these cases, it may lead us off on a tangent onto another case. And as we research, we find it interesting and we decide to put that into future episodes. A lot of what we do is basic police work, isn't it? As we were used to doing, you talk to people about one subject and then it goes on to another and it leads to something completely different and then you follow that lead to wherever that goes and that that was what happened here wasn't it we we were intrigued from what Stephen said who this chap Michael Tallinn was that's right and you're not averse to a to a good old chat are you John <laughs> so having met uh, Michael in prison of course the prison system they move round and they lose touch and he Stephen was aware that Michael had been released, but we didn't know where and what had happened to him. So we made some some inquiries, didn't we? We did. And apparently he left prison in January of 1994. But as soon as he was released, he went to live in Australia. And it was during the creation of these three episodes that we got in contact with fellow true crime podcasters, Evidence Locker, and the two people involved in Evidence Locker, Sonia and Noel, are based in Australia. And they also showed an interest in this case. And we shared information to and from, didn't we? When we set out doing podcasts, one of the one of the highlights or the interesting part we were interested in was talking to people all over the world, wasn't it, with, with different cases, because people do move around. And this one was one of the first ones where we actually got a connection in Australia and contact with Evidence Locker to help us, if you like, find out what the story was in Australia. Yeah, because we are True Crime Investigators UK, all of our cases have a base 
in the UK. However, uh, that doesn't preclude us from reviewing cases that actually take us round the world. And certainly this one did take us round the world because it took us to America and it took us to Australia. And just while we're talking about uh, Evidence Locker, their format to their podcast is different to ours. Um, Sonia researches and cases and then scripts them. Noel then records them and then Sonia produces them. That's very different to ours, which is very interview and, and discussion based. Earlier this spring, they released their own episode looking into this case. And we recommend that you listen to that after you've listened to us. But we'd like to play you a clip of that episode, which describes the final story of what happened to Michael once he moved to Australia. Michael Telling served 11 years in prison and was released in January 1994. He had decided to go back to the most isolated city on the planet, Perth. It was evident that he had planned his next chapter while still in prison. Because of his extended stay in Australia between 1966 and 1981, it is fair to assume he had dual citizenship. Therefore, he would not have to apply for a visa and disclose his crime. He could enter Australia and restart his life on a clean page. No questions asked. While he was in prison, his wealth accumulated, and he was granted the privileges of the Vesti Trust once he was free. Within three months of his release, the 44-year-old heir was living in Perth and bought a house for $750,000 in Rossmoyne. He soon purchased a neighboring home as well for 300000 Telling could easily blend in with the understated wealthy socialites of Perth without ever disclosing too much about his past. Rossmoyne is a desirable riverside suburb, good for families with big blocks of land. This is also good for someone who would not like to be too close to their neighbors. Telling was somewhat of a recluse and kept to himself. People who knew him in Perth described Telling as an English gentleman. He continued fueling his passion for motor vehicles and was an active member of the Jaguar Club. He was also a cricket enthusiast and held a Western Australian Cricket Association, or WACA, membership. He enjoyed watching matches and everything about him seemed cool, calm, and collected. And he always ate alone. Michael Telling died on the 16th of December, 2009, at hospice, because of complications due to diabetes at the age of 59. Only when he died did Paul Murray, editor of the West Australian, receive a tip about Telling's past. It was one of Paul's readers who had informed him. The expose article in the West Australian was titled Killer Secret Life in Perth. Jaguar dealer Wilf Chambers was Telling's best friend in Perth and said he knew Michael was an aristocrat but would never have guessed that he had killed his wife. When he died, none of his close friends knew anything about his murder conviction back in England. On his death certificate, his ex-wife Allison and his son Matthew were noted, but there was no mention of his second marriage. He clearly never told anyone in Perth that he was married to Monica, let alone that he murdered her and had served time for it. To his friends and neighbors, this killer was nothing more than an unassuming man. But then again, killers often are simply the person next door, hiding in plain sight. 
Once again, we thank the Evidence Locker podcast for allowing us to play that clip describing how Michael moved and later died while living in Australia. You can listen to that full episode by visiting and subscribing to the podcast at evidencelockerpodcast.com. So what do you think about the fact that once he was released, Michael goes to live in Australia? Yeah, he served 10 years, as we know, before he was released, which must have had an effect on, on him and anybody who'd been locked up in prison for 10 years. And what do you do? Where do you go? And and I think such was the media interest when the case was heard back in uh, 1984 that perhaps he didn't want to stick around in this country because once the media get wind of the fact that he had been released, perhaps that media frenzy would would start again and that wouldn't be what what he wanted and certainly not the attention that he would have wanted to attract. And I mean, most people that are released from prison wouldn't have that opportunity to move to the other side of the world, would they? They would have to go back into the communities they came from. But such was Michael's background and resources that he could just go to Australia and integrate into society there buy a house yeah well, as we've heard his mother had lived in australia for some time and owned considerable amounts of property so he had an australian connection and we're not sure but possibly he did have dual nationality with australia i think that's a real possibility certainly from sort of 1966 I think his mother moved to Kirribilli in Sydney, which is a very nice, very affluent area of the city. And then in about 1970, I think that's when he first moved to Perth. Perhaps he did have dual nationality because he had spent so much time in Australia. And if he did have dual nationality, he wouldn't have to divulge the fact that he got a conviction or that he'd been in prison. Because if he hadn't got Australian nationality, presumably he would have to apply for residence or get a visa of some kind. And when you're making those kind of applications, you do have to disclose if you've got any convictions. Well, it's interesting when he moved to Australia, and then, of course, he subsequently died in Australia, that on the death certificate... It doesn't actually give correct, truthful information, does it? Well, on the death certificate, it, it asks for... Because he, he died in 2009. And on his death certificate, it asks for his marriage particulars. And it describes him as divorced. But then goes on to name the partner he was divorced from as being Alison Ruth Webber, which was his first wife who he had the son with. And there's no mention of Monica at all, because I would have thought that his marital particulars would have been that he's widowed because his wife, Monica, had died. But there is no mention of Monica at all, as just as if she's been airbrushed from his life. And possibly to stop people asking awkward questions from an official capacity, fresh start in Australia, where he knew that there probably won't be many questions asked. And that was the place to go, really, the furthest point from, from the United Kingdom. And if you recall, when we were talking to Sonia from Evidence Locker podcast, 
I think we asked the question, doesn't it seem unusual that this guy comes to to live in Perth, he's obviously very affluent, he's buying, he buys a property and nobody asks him a question. And what did she say to that? Well, she said that uh, that is not unusual in Australia, that people are conditioned, if you like, not to ask too it's many part of questions. Their, it's part of their culture, isn't it? That they just don't... They don't ask the questions. They don't pry. Like we would be interested and think, who's this person or whatever. And Sonia, when we spoke to her, said that doesn't happen like that in Australia, intimating that a lot of the people in Australia have got backgrounds that they probably don't want to acknowledge where they actually came from, going back to when prisoners were transported there. I think initially that's where the culture comes from, but the culture continues today that, they don't ask questions and whether they take people on on face value. And it's something know, that we hadn't we hadn't thought of. No. Because we when we looked at this case and found out that he'd gone to Australia, he seemed to have just stepped into this very wealthy arena of uh, business people who we befriended and just integrated in as though nothing had happened and we thought that was strange. I mean, you wouldn't be averse to if anybody moves into our village, and I know you have done this, gone and knocked on the door and said, who are you and where do you come from? So uh, we certainly don't have the Australian culture because we're far more nosy and inquisitive than that, aren't we? But perhaps that's one reason why Michael Tellin went back to Australia. It is. And from what Sonia and ourselves have found out, that... Nobody had the faintest idea that he had murdered his ex-wife and served time in prison and took him on as a a wealthy Englishman and he's sort of associated with like-minded and wealthy people who are completely oblivious to his background until, and I don't know who it was, somebody tipped off a journalist that Michael Tellin, although he was a wealthy person, had a secret background and they're all quite amazed to know that for all the years he'd lived there that they were associating with this person who'd committed this terrible crime and uh, served 10 years in prison. And as far as we're aware from what we found out from Australia, there's no suggestion that he he did anything uh, criminal again and just lived a quiet life until he died quite young from complications with his diabetic problem, I think, isn't it? So two sides to the story, Michael Telling's side and the Zumsteg's side. So once Michael Telling makes that decision that once he's been released from prison, he goes to Australia and slips into community life. But we then look at the Zumsteg's who are completely unaware that he's been released and they're still fighting with the effects of losing Monica in such tragic circumstances and trying to move on with a life without Monica. And also the subsequent traumas and tragedies that carried on after Monica's death, wasn't there? You know, there's Lou who took the uh, effect of introducing them together badly and and the effect it had on him if i remember right he attempted suicide and he didn't 
but died a troubled man. And of course, Erica suffered greatly, as we know, for many, many years. And her brother committed suicide. All was happening while Michael was either in prison or living quite a lavish lifestyle in Australia. Two completely different stories, isn't there? And in this case, Erica and her family are definitely the victims. But as difficult as it may be to suggest, if Michael was also perhaps a victim of the life that he was born into. And that's what we discussed with Erica. You know, for so many years, when Michael killed Monica, I never got to talk to him again. I never talked to my sister again. I couldn't ask Michael what happened. Why? What brought you to this? And a lot of people talk about how, you know, he would go into these fancy stories about who he was and all this stuff. I don't think Michael Telling even knew who he really was or where he even stood. You know, one thing true about Michael was he was jealous. He was jealous even when then then people would think, well, how can he be jealous? He has all this. Well, because they all shoved Michael away in these boarding schools, this, that, whatever. I think Michael was their black sheep. And the barrister, for instance, or attorney, I think it was Mr. Brown, you know, Michael didn't get enough money and he wanted something else. He would just go to him and say, well, I want this. And he might try to talk him out, but he was spoiled. Give it to him and shut him up. Give it to him and shut him up. And I will say that they continued to enable Michael's mental state and his abilities to create who he wanted. That family helped him, that money, that wealth. He should have felt the truth of what he had done. When Michael was convicted and imprisoned, did yourself or any of the family ever hear from him again? No. There was, when um, Paul Murray called me from uh, Australia, when he told me Michael had died and they discovered he was who, who that guy was there, he recalled me saying, I guess I'll never get the chance. He remember, I remember him repeating me, you know, that to me later on. And he asked me, it's like, when you said that, what were you thinking? What, was your, what were you saying? I said, I never get the chance. I'll never get the chance to talk to Michael. He's the last one that saw Monica. And not only that, there are certain things about Michael Initially, you know, I thought he was fun and he, he could be. Um, I was a younger sister. I was excited that my sister was married until all the stuff started hitting the fan. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking to us, um, Erica, about Monica. And we hope, both of us hope, by talking about her and remembering her so fondly, that you can at some point feel able to hold on to those those kind thoughts, those happy thoughts of Monica. You know, it, it's been a long time, but I have actually been able to have good memories. Um, this process is helping walls come down. Um, the biggest thing was that my brother and I were kind of ignored and... You know, and so 
finally, you know, finally I'm, I can breathe and I can cry and I can laugh. And when I go out now, I feel, you know, nothing's perfect, but I start feeling like a new energy and, uh, and I feel again, proud of my sister and who she was and that, you know, she still has made an impact and that's, that's really big. And I feel like Monica is, you know, above me just saying, Ricky, it's time, you know, it, you, it's okay. You can let the walls down. People can hear, and she's thanking me for speaking for her, because I think if there's such a thing of people being in limbo, you know, Monica, if there's a way, she still hurts for the people around her. So I think this is probably healing beyond myself. Sally, it's quite clear that Without Erica's input into this podcast, we wouldn't have learned so much of what herself and her family went through. And we owe Erica a, a real debt of gratitude for helping us and cooperating with us in such a way. When we first met Erica, she was really traumatised and plucked up the courage to talk to us and, and help us, hasn't she? Well, really, we appreciate that these are difficult times and... We're asking Erica to talk about particularly painful moments in her life. And I hope that we've managed to tell her story and the story of her sister in a very measured, fair and unbiased way. I mean, when we started doing these podcasts, I didn't realise, well, we both didn't realise because we have we do discuss everything we do um, before we investigate or record things, that as police officers and lawyers our job is to bring it before the court and do the best we can to present the evidence to the court after that well it's out of our hands isn't it and we walk away and go on to the next case we've got to investigate and the families are left forever and it struck me with Michael Pritchard's widow and the the podcast we did with that one and then this one you can imagine what it's like, but until you speak to these people, you don't get the feeling of what it's like. And Erica was very, very passionate, wasn't she? And and couldn't move on. And heartbroken. And heartbroken. But I, I think it's fair to say at this point that before we record any of our interviews, that we always have a series of introduction chats with the people that we talk to to make sure that they know how we present these cases and they're satisfied with our approach and that they want to talk to us and they want to contribute to the podcast. So there's a lot of talking before we actually get to the interviews just to ensure that those families that have suffered the trauma that they have suffered actually want to tell their story. And as you say, Erica was quite passionate in the fact that during the course of the trial, Michael was given a voice and these accusations were made against her sister. 
it wasn't the person that she recognised. And some of the other witnesses for the prosecution said they didn't recognise the person that was being portrayed in the court. And I think it's important that to even that balance that that we give, that the podcast gives Monica a voice, if you like. And that wasn't particularly our intention when we started doing podcasts, was it? We didn't realise that we could help people, which clearly we have and are doing. And Erica acknowledges if it wasn't for us wanting to give Monica's viewpoint, if you like, and the fact that, you know, the family believed she was wronged by the court, that they can move on. And and she was really quite forceful about that, wasn't she? She was. And and what she said was, as soon as people realised what had happened, they were more interested in the death of Monica and what happened to Monica and the gruesome details of, of how her body was retained and then disposed of. They were more interested in in that and talking about that because Erica and her family have had to live with this for 38 years now and that's a long time and one of the things that she did say to us when we had our last interview with her and we were just having a chat afterwards she did say that Thanksgiving last year was the first time that she'd enjoyed Thanksgiving and listening to what she had to say about that was that now she's told the story and she's given Monica a voice and she's levelled the playing field, that burden, not wholly, but has gone some way to lifting that burden off her shoulders. That that's that was my take from from what Erica was saying to us. And also, of course, she wishes to come to England. She's never been to England, has she? No. And now, unfortunately, we've, we're in the COVID restrictions still as we're recording this. But in time, we have said to her, and she's asked if she can come to England and meet us and visit some of the places where Monica lived. Yeah, and and I I think all that is is quite therapeutic to be able to. Well, we talk about it many times. Put your feet on the street. The fact that she wants to be where Monica was, and I think that sort of comes towards the end of all of this that now she's she's getting some comfort from the fact that she's told Monica's story from Monica's side but also on the other side and we 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 will never know because we've not had any contact with Michael's family that what must they feel because they must be in a similar position with what Michael did he was one of their family and we will never know how they feel because obviously we've not made contact with them, have we? But they must be going through a similar process, shouldn't they? I mean, Michael has a son. Yeah, of course. Of course, and, and the the events of 1983 weren't just tragic for Monica and Monica's family. The events and the aftermath and how life is able to go on also reflects on the family that, that Michael's left behind. And who knows what would have happened if Michael hadn't met Monica? What kind of life would he have led? Would he have ended up in some sticky situation because of the tendencies and behaviour he's clearly exhibited leading up to meeting Monica with his fantasies, his 
belief that or wanting to appear to be a spy and SAS soldier or connected with those people. Clearly he was on a path of something not being right and leading into no doubt tragedy. If if it wasn't Monica, could it have been somebody else? And that goes back to talking about destiny, doesn't it? And people's where does destiny take them? The point is that Michael did what he did and then having been released from prison, moved to Australia, airbrushed Monica out of his life. But the ripples from that are very far-reaching, aren't they? And continue to this day. Absolutely. At the end of the day, when we've now investigated and heard what's happened from various people, Michael came from a wealthy family, as we know. He wanted for nothing. He didn't work. He didn't have any structure to his life. What he wanted, he could have. Money was no object, if you like. Is that a good thing? And that's a really difficult question because I know of some wealthy people who have children who have made it quite clear that they aren't going to leave their fortune to their children as an inheritance. They'll look after them and they'll care for them while they're here, but they won't inherit the wealth and the fortune that they have made. And it's kind of a thing about you can make your own way. And if you've got it in you to be successful, then you'll make a a fortune of your own. So I think some people do recognise that that wealth isn't the answer to everything. But even so, if you have money, it doesn't make you a murderer, does it? It doesn't, no. And we're all accountable for our actions, whether, whether we haven't got two pennies to rub together or whether we've got a trust fund or a few million stashed in the bank. We are all accountable for the consequences of our actions. I think Erica summed up to us, didn't she, that Michael and Monica were victims, weren't they? You know, Michael, I think we we must accept Michael was did have issues from a young boy, didn't he, that wasn't, we'd probably say there were mental health issues, wouldn't we, and led that life that probably his money made it worse, perhaps. You know, we've heard he used to throw tantrums if he didn't get what he wanted. And, you know, Monica was a victim because just by chance she was sucked into that relationship. But I don't think you can make excuses for just because you've got money. There's a lot of people around the world with with money, with wealth, who are born into wealth. And there's a lot of people around the world who have mental health issues that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to kill those nearest and dearest to them and deal with them and the way that Michael dealt with with Monica. That's not an excuse and a justification, is it? Oh, no. No, we're not saying it was an excuse. It was just, and we keep coming back to, and we've discussed it at great length, haven't we, privately, that how life can turn out literally by a chance meeting and disasters that follow from it. Split second meeting changed the life of the Zumstegs forever. And that can happen to anybody, can't it? It can, but I think it's the run up to that 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 moulds the person that you are. Um it all goes down to what many people discuss, nature or nurture, doesn't it? Are you naturally 
a violent person or have you been nurtured and the way that you've been nurtured leads you to become a violent person. And looking back, could anything have been done, do you think? We've now got the end picture of this tragic incident. And, and the way I think about it is that, you know, they tried to help Michael in his younger days, obviously, and you can only do so much. And people have got to behave and continue life as they want to lead it, don't they? And unfortunately, it took a bad turn for the worst. And Michael and Monica were on a collision course. We'd just like to say thank you for listening. And we certainly hope that you've found this case, although it's very tragic, that you've been interested in the way in which we have reviewed it and we have spoken to the people who had first-hand knowledge of that. We have done other investigations that you might want to listen to. We did a trilogy on the Wendy Sewell murder, which is an undetected murder in Derbyshire, England. We did uh, an episode on a very recent murder, in fact, one that John worked on in 1997 in relation to the Michael Pritchard murder. Again, that is a Derbyshire murder. And then we did four episodes on Operation Julie, which was a big drugs operation back in the 1970s. So if you are interested in any of those, please subscribe and have a listen to the other cases that we have reviewed and covered. You're more than welcome to send us messages if you have any thoughts about our show. You can do that via the website truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. Also on the website is additional information and photographs, maps, reports, media extracts about all of the cases that we review. You could also meet us by going to CrimeCon UK on the 25th and 26th of September in London and that's in association with Crime and Investigation. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. If you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to this feed to automatically get new episodes when we release them. And we'll see you next time when we delve into a whole new investigation. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Catherine McDermott, who also performed the Christina extracts. And it was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about this murder by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all our podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.